0: Morning everybody. Got damaged goods for speaker up here this morning. My throat's not working, my body's sick, and, and I'm gonna go as far as I can go, and that's it. My name is Tom Jr., I'm an alcoholic, and by pure mercy and grace, it's come to me through the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. I haven't had a drink since July 20th,
1: 1965.
0: I was thinking about those words before I got up here. It was grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. It's a beautiful line. I uh, don't know if some of you were like me last night when Lynn was making the announcements and And she was telling everybody to cut off things, cut off your cell telephones, cut off your beepers, you know, cut off this, cut off that. And I could have swear she said, and cut off your vibrators. (laughs) Now, I don't know what some of you women are doing during meetings, but... Shut up, Liz. <laughs> and it was good to hear Mr. Potato Head last night. I hadn't heard him in a long time. Those who missed that talk last night missed a good one. And I see sitting down front some of my good friends. One I'm from North Carolina. The guy, he might, he might not like it. I call him the mighty midget. You're going to hear him tomorrow morning. <laughs> His name is Keith L. And he's one of my dearest and closest friends. a real, A real brother in the program you know they're brothers and they're brothers they're brothers that you can count on sometimes they're brothers you can count on all the time and keeps always been an all-time brother for me you know ain't no road too far ain't no mountain too high if old tom needs help all i gotta do is call and i appreciate that my friend i appreciate that i'm the kind of person who always believed that anything that felt good should be done to excess. My creed was, if it feels good, overdo it. And so sometimes I ate too much, and sometimes I drank too much. I remember when I found out sex felt good. I was by myself just like all the rest of you were. And in spite of some dire warnings from my mother about going blind and a certain part of my anatomy falling off, it felt so good I figured I'd keep on till I was nearsighted. And as you can see, that was one of my first successes in life. I'm a person who likes to do everything at once and do it perfectly. I don't know if I'll ever get out of that. I try to have 19 jobs, I'm doing 19 jobs at one time. And every one of them has got to be just right. Now our friends, the shrinks, call that obsessive compulsive disorder. Isn't that pretty? That sounds important. I call it the Tasmanian Devil Syndrome just running from here and yon and running through everything and over everything and and getting nothing done in the long run and getting awfully frustrated. And then you try to deal with the frustration the same way you deal with everything else, and I end up being in a mess. Now, I've always been a great starter and a poor finisher. Everything I ever did in my life, I had two speeds, fast forward and stop. And when I was hurting, you better believe, I put it in fast forward and I went for help. Help me, help me, help me, you know. And then I'd get feeling a little better, Ken, you know. And uh, it would come back on stop. And I'd go right back out and do the same thing that got me in trouble to begin with. I don't know if any of you had that problem. And I don't know if you see it as a problem in Alcoholics Anonymous. I do. Think about how many new people you've seen come in this program. And they're hurting, and it's in fast forward. Man, everybody help me. God help me to listen to every word you say. They start quoting you and all that kind of stuff, you know. And then after three or four or six weeks, they start feeling a little better, and it comes back on stop. And you don't see them until they're hurting again. It's a great problem. I had a friend down in South Carolina, a Jewish fellow named Manny Berger, one of the greatest men I ever knew in my life who used to say, if there's anything worse than good fortune for an alcoholic, uh, bad fortune for an alcoholic, it's good fortune. He said, when things get good, that's bad. And that was pretty much the story of my life. I don't know about you, I can look back on my drinking days. And I didn't drink when there were problems. I hustled and I got those problems solved. And then when the problems were solved, I'd go out and get drunk and create more. And that's the way it was with me. I live in a body that won't handle alcohol. My body never would handle alcohol. Every time I put alcohol into my body, my body sent me a clear, quick, distinct message. Get some more of that shit and get it right now. Now, I don't know if any of you had that problem. That's what Silkworth called the phenomenon of craving. It is not. Uh, 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 no, no one else has this but us. You put it in, it wants more. You put more in, it wants more. You put more in, it wants more. Okay. And I'm never going to recover from that. As long as I live, I'm going to live in a body that won't handle alcohol. Once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. That's what that means. But you see, I got this wonderful, great alcoholic mind that kept telling me that my body could do what my body was trying to tell me it wasn't going to do. I kept telling myself, someday, somehow, if I just handle it right, it's going to be different. You know, some day somehow if I just handle it right, I'm going to be able to drink like everybody else. And that in itself was a falsehood. I didn't want to drink like everybody else. I did not and I do not understand social drinkers to this day. These people make me ill. You go to a party and they like to talk about us alcohol abusers. That's what they call us is alcohol abusers, you know substance abusers, they get to have what they call these cocktail parties. That's an interesting word, isn't it? Cocktail. (laughs) Think about that for a little bit, Kent. (laughs) And these idiots take perfectly good liquor and start putting shit in it. (laughs) Pepsi, Cola, Sprite, milk. And then they start with the vegetables, and they put a little celery and some carrots and a few olives in there, you know. And then the fruits, and they put the fruits on there, and they squirt whipped cream on top of it. Stick a straw in it shaped like an umbrella and suck it. Now, that ain't the way to drink. And in addition, when you take perfectly good liquor and put all that shit in it, that is what I call alcohol abuse.
1: <laughs>
0: Never want to drink like that. But I had this mind that was kind, because of what alcohol did for me, and I'll get into that later, that was kind of locked. Oh, I'm going to get that feeling again. I'm going to get it again. I'm going to get it again. i got to get it again. It's the best feeling i ever had in my life. I must have it. And every time I tried it, same result. body won't handle alcohol. An AA program is different and more successful than any other program on the face of the earth for one reason, one reason only. It says I'm spiritually sick. I didn't know what that meant. I'm a perfectionist. I'm an idealist. I'm a hypersensitive romantic dreamer who has never been satisfied with this life or me or you like it was. I always wanted more. And if you'd only do it my way, it would be perfect. And I manipulated and I conned and I schemed and I used people, not thinking about their well-being at all. And in doing so, I built a wall between me and those people. And if I build a wall between my, my brother, my sister, and me, I build a wall between me and God also. I believe that with all my heart. And I ended up isolated, separated, apart, lonely, spiritually sick, disconnected. That ain't no pretty picture, is it? Being lonely is no fun. Being disconnected is even less fun. We I mean, don't even feel like your prayers are being heard, much less your words to people. AA program is a simple program. Anybody can work this program. But you give us a fart and we'll complicate it in 15 minutes. We sit around meetings, and I've been in a thousand of them, where we discuss the first three steps. And we complicate them. Little children understand things. You know that? Deep down in every man, woman, and child is the fundamental idea of God. There's a part of us that knows everything we're ever going to have to know. I believe that. And we have it when we're kids. We're born with it. Every little kid knows. When the situation is bigger than he can handle, to go get somebody bigger, and they'll handle the situation. Every kid knows that. You know? And it's not smartness. It's built-in knowledge. It's intuitive. They know. "Uh Uh-oh, situation's out of control. Better go get daddy. Better go get my big sister. Better go get mama. You know, when I was a little boy, I had a friend named Ronnie. And Ronnie's the filthiest kid I ever knew in my life. You could smell Ronnie coming two blocks away. Ronnie picked his nose, put boogers in his hair, and twisted it up all over his head. <laughs> Looked like Pig Pen in the comic strip, you know? Talk about snot on the elbow, you ain't ever seen anything like Ronnie. And I liked him. <laughs> Ronnie's mom and daddy were street drunks. He had no one to care for him, and I liked him. I was afraid of him. Don't know why, maybe it was the smell or something, but I was afraid of him. And I'd take him home with me sometimes, and Mom and Daddy would take him in the house and keep him for a week or ten days after Mother had washed him on the front porch, and his clothes and everything. And Ronnie loved my family, and he loved my Daddy, and he loved my Mom, and he loved me, and I, I was scared of him. I I could beat Ronnie at two things. I could beat him shooting marbles, and I could outrun him, which was good because I was scared of him. (laughs) Now, marbles is a simple game. It's a childhood game. And the name of the game is if if you win, you get all the marbles. Well, I'd win, and Ronnie would take my marbles. (laughs) And I'd go get my daddy. I say, Daddy Ronnie got my marbles again. He'd say, well son, did you win? And I'd say, yes sir. He'd say, that's not right. Let's go get them. He'd take me by the hand. We'd go over to Ronnie's house. I think Ronnie stole my marbles just to get to see my daddy. I swear I do. Cause daddy would walk up there. He'd say, Ronnie, did you get, did you get Tommy's marbles again? He said, yes sir. Well, did you win? He said, no sir. And daddy would say, that's not right, Ronnie. Give them back. He said, okay. real simple, Bill, you know. Now, the first three steps go like this. I have lost my marbles, and I can't get them back. (laughs) I know if I get somebody bigger, I'll get my marbles back. (laughs) And I go get that bigger person, and lo and behold, I get my marbles back. There's nothing complicated. The AA program says, Hey, Tom, first of all, first of all, primo, quit playing God. Quit manipulating, using, conning, scheming, shucking, jiving to get your self-centered ass way. Quit it. And then it goes on. And it tells me if I'll Examine the bricks in that wall that I have built between me and you. Put a name on them. Talk them over with somebody make sure I didn't miss anything. Ask God to knock out enough of those bricks so I can touch my fellows and him. Step across the line make restitution to those I've harmed. Reconnect. And that obsession to drink absolutely disappears. I haven't had it in over 34 and a half years. Simple, isn't it? Intellectuals don't understand that. That's the reason intellectuals have such a hard time in this program. They can complicate two farts while we're complicating one. Can you imagine me trying to tell an intellectual about my sobriety? <laughs> and I'm talking from the heart, he's talking from the mind. He said, You must be an awful strong person to have recovered from alcoholism. I said, No, sir, it's my weakness that sobered me up. And he said, That doesn't make sense. And I said, I know it doesn't. And he said, You must have fought awfully hard to win the victory over alcohol. And I said, No, sir, I surrendered. And he says, That makes no sense. And I said, No, it doesn't. He said, well, what do you do? I said, I go to meetings. Oh, group therapy. No, sir, it's not group therapy. It's just a bunch of drunks get together, sit around in a room, talk, talk a lot, you know, and lie to each other most of the time. <laughs> and he said, that makes no sense. And I said, I know it doesn't. Well, what else do you do? Well, I got a sponsor. Oh, a psychotherapist. No, sir, he's a plumber. <laughs> and he said, that doesn't make any sense. And I said, No, it doesn't. He said, well, who came up? What else do you do? I said, I got a 12-step program. All the theologians, metaphysicians got together and put together the program. No, sir, it was put together by a bunch of drunks. And he says, that makes absolutely no sense. And I said, I know it doesn't. And he's beside himself by now. And he says, Well, who started this outfit? And I tell him, a bankrupt stockbroker and a proctologist who had lost his ass. (laughs) Makes ultimate sense. God's a poet. Only a a poet would send a message to someone who needs that message from someone who knows that message. Only a poet makes ultimate sense. God's always chosen strange people to do things. He chose Moses. Moses was a stutterer. Did you know that? The Bible says Moses was slow of speech. You imagine being down in the pasture with your sheep one night and this voice calls you up to this mountain and you go up there and you're wondering about things and you say, who are you? And this big voice comes down and says, I am. And a bush lights up. Right after I wet my pants, I'd have started stuttering. God says, Moses, I want you to go to Egypt and get my kids. They've been down there too long. They've been mistreated. I can hear old Moses saying, God, I can't can't, can't go. Because I can't talk a lick. He said, that's all right. I'll send your brother to do the talking. You're going to Egypt. Ezekiel. Man went out in the valley and a bunch of skeletons and saw them getting up and reconnecting and dancing. Uh, that would not be called sane. He saw wheels inside of wheels way up in the middle of the air. The man was nuts. I think he was a drunk in DT's. And you know, when God tells you to do something, it don't do you no good, say no. You remember, uh, who was the guy? Jonah. God said, Jonah, I want you to go out in Nineveh. Those people are sinning down there. Go preach, preach to them, change them. Jonah said, Jonah said, I ain't going to Nineveh. He got on a boat, went the other way. Remember, they threw him out of the boat because uh, he was causing trouble with the water and everything. And a big fish swallowed him up. You remember where he spit him up? In Nineveh. <laughs> Strong message. I tell you asked to go to Nineveh, you're going to Nineveh. See, <laughs> so God's always chosen strange people. How about a carpenter? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? You're damn right it can. I was born in a little mill town down in North Carolina, cotton mill. Everybody on that street was family to me. Every adult was my mom and my dad, you know. I visited at your house. I slept at your house. I ate at your house. If I misbehaved, I was punished at your house. It's what they used to call the extended family, which no longer exists in 2000. And it's sad. I had a whole block of family. And I love those people. And I remember him to this day. The lady that lived next door to me was the best cook on the block, and she was also the best eater. And her name was Lena, and Lena was a big, heavy-set woman, you know. And and uh, people didn't call me Tom when I was little or Tommy; they called me Puddin'head <laughs> cause I had snow-white hair. They called me Puddinghead, and I loved to hug Lena. Man, when you hugged Lena, you had a breast in both ears. <laughs> and she rubbed rub me on the head and say, I love you, Puddin', and i just go, Mm. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs>
0: Nothing sexual about it, Liz. <laughs> and I had friends, you know. That had old man, Lucas, who would come by and pick me up in a wheelbarrow and take me down to slop the hogs with him. And while he was slopping the hogs, I'd go over and wade in the creek catch some crawdads. And, you know, kind of drink a little of that cold water out of that creek. You could do it in those days. And my daddy taught me how to do that. My daddy's the most wonderful man that ever walked the face of the earth. God help me. I hope I can be more like him. He was so kind, so gentle, so simple, so accepting, and so loving that you wouldn't believe it. The whole time I was ruining his life, he accepted and loved me just like I was. I ain't got there yet. I'd walk back from the hog pen barefooted like a kid would, you know. I didn't have any goals and objectives for the day. I'd just be in, Keith. Kids know how to be, you know. He asked a little kid, What you thinking about? He said, Nothing. <laughs> Where you been? Down yonder. Where are you going? Up yonder. Well, what you going to do when you get there? Don't know. It is being. You know, I get so busy I don't have time to be. Being is the ground of meditation. Being is the ground of meditation. Stop the noise and be. Throw away the goals and objectives and be. Think of nothing and nobody and be. And God can communicate with you. But I'm busy. Doing God's work, of course. I'd go home, and lay down on the ground, you know, and look up at the sky cause it was there. It's pretty. And I'd say to myself, that's pretty. I wonder who made that. And the cloud would go over and I'd say, I wonder who made that. That's a nice cloud. And it'd go away. I'd say, I wonder where it went. Didn't bother myself with it. Didn't try to analyze it or anything. Just observed it. Committed it to memory Isn't it a good experience. And went about my business. You know, just being. Every Saturday I went to the movies. Saw a Double Feature Western, cost me nine cents. Box popcorn was a nickel. Man next door ran the theater, I had it made. And the Cowboys were my huge seek In addition to the Double Feature Western, you see a couple of serials like Buck Rogers and Flash Gordon and some good cartoons, you know? Like, like Bugs Bunny and, and uh, Wile E. Coyote, who's one of my role models to this day. That's some that's don't never give up. You know that? <laughs> I keep yelling at him on the screen, Wiley, change companies. Change companies. <laughs> and I go to those movies and I love those cowboys. Any of y'all remember Wild Bill Elliott? Wore silver six guns, wore them backwards. You draw down on Wild Bill, he'd spin those six guns. You remember what you can And he'd shoot the guns out of your hands. Cause cowboys was very polite in those days. They didn't want to hurt nobody. And Sunset Carson. And Rocky Lane. And the Durango Kid. I could go on and on and on, and my favorite cowboy was Lash LaRue. And they called him Lash because he used the bullwhip. You draw down on Lash, he whooped the bullwhip out of your hand, your gun out of your hand, you know. Oh, he's cool. I was watching old Lash one day, and he'd run all the bad guys out of town. And he was standing up on the roof of the saloon looking all macho. He popped his whip and his whistle whistled and his horse came running by and he popped it again and leapt into the saddle and rode off into the sunset. And tears came down my cheeks. I said, my God, that's wonderful. You know, and I sat through the movie again and again and again to see Lash do that. Well, you got to emulate your heroes. So I went home, got a piece of rope and went up on the garage. A little boy next door named John Q had a pony named Beauty. I said, John Q, go saddle up Beauty. And he did. I said, now walk her past the garage. And he did. And I popped my rope and I whistled and I leapt into the saddle. Just like Lash had done. And when I hit that saddle, you could have heard me scream in Myrtle Beach. Thirty minutes later, when I got my breath back, I started wondering about Lash LaRue, too. I did things that little boys do. I considered myself to be an extremely ugly kid. I was skin and bones. My shoulder blades were handlebars for my tricycle. My mother loved me to wear knickers. My leg was this big and the knicker hole was this big. <laughs> I had freckles from the top of my head to the bottom of my feet. I had freckles where people have never reported having freckles. <laughs> and I always wanted to be macho. And my mother had these four big brothers. And the most macho was my Uncle Durwood. You call him Dud. He was a motorcycle cop. Back in the days when they wore riding breeches and leather spats up to their knees, you know, and, and, and he had a harness across here with silver bullets in it. And a pearl-handled 38 sitting high on his hip. And he smelled like gunpowder and shaving lotion. And he squeaked when he walked. And I wanted to be like him. And here I am with my freckles. And that snow white hair. All my macho uncles call me Puddin' Head. <laughs> and you know, all of my life I was afraid. And I was angry all of my life. I don't know why. I don't think I ever will. But you know, I'd get on that old Indian motorcycle. Behind my Uncle Dud. And put my arms around that big body of his. And I wasn't scared a bit. And I wasn't angry a bit. I felt like I was in heaven and I was. You see, even then I needed a higher power, Ken. I just didn't know it. And my Uncle Dud was my higher power. With him around and my arms around him or his around me. I was safe and secure, and it was fine. He's 90 years old now. He's still the most macho man you ever met in your life. Lie, every time I hear one of those police stories, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. (laughs) And I love it. Since I didn't like myself, it was very important to me that you did. Since I couldn't accept myself, it was very important to me that you accepted me. I got a good mind. I'm not bragging. I got a good mind. And I used it. To get the acceptance and the approval, I excelled at everything that I did. In school, straight A's. Always straight A's. Everything that was to be done, I finished on top. That's where you got the attention. That's where you got the approval. But you notice something funny about that. After the moment of approval has passed, I would say to myself, that's not it. What's next? What is it? My God, what is it? I'm looking. When I was 15, I took a drink of some stuff called Cream of Kentucky, and I was no longer afraid, nor angry, and I felt acceptable and accepted. It was fantastic. Changed me. It sent me that false message that alcohol sends to every alcoholic. This is it. Whatever you've been looking for, baby, you have found it. No more fear. This will take it away. No more pain. This will take it away. No more anger, Keith. It'll even take that away. It's a magic elixir, which kills. By the time I was 23, I'd had over a thousand stitches taken in my face as a result of drinking. I'd broken almost every bone in my body. I was a drunk driver, a blackout drinker from the very beginning. I don't remember any of the wrecks I ever had. Not one. People had to tell me where they happened. And how they happened. I didn't know. And I was dying. Slowly but surely, I was putting me to death. Are you doing that? Because I hated Me. I'm not going to get into my drinking a lot. It's typical. I showed up at AA when I was about 23 with this mind of mine, which is a good mind. But you take a good mind and you fill it full of alcohol. And it becomes a killer mind that can justify its killing. Hell, I had an answer for everything. I think I went to AA to satisfy my mama, Black Belt Southern Baptist. Like to kill me, Ken, bailing me out of jail. Only way she knew how to love was give me money. Couldn't hug me or kiss me, just give me money. Get me out of trouble. Handle all of my troubles. Make sure I was on top so she could tell people about it. Make sure they didn't know I was on bottom. Keep the big secret about your son. He's a damn drunk. I'm not putting my mama down. When my mother died, we were the best of friends. She had Alzheimer's. After she got Alzheimer's, that woman kissed me until I thought I couldn't stand no more kissing. The Alzheimer's changed her, I guess, Keith. She could hug me and kiss me. She could demonstrate affection, and it was nice. I did things the way I always did. Learn it quick, wrap it up, go to the top, and go to whatever's next. Went to this meeting, this guy's standing up front, he's got a blue book in front of him, 12 steps on the wall here and 12 traditions on the wall here. And I said to myself, like, all I gotta do is memorize those and those, and what's in that book, and I'll be president of Alcoholics Anonymous in six months. I mean, that's the way the intellectual thinks. And I memorized it. I can quote great portions of the big book to you anymore. One of the joys of my life is I don't have to do that anymore. I got nothing to prove to you. I can misquote the son of a bitch if I want to. (laughs) But don't you do it. <laughs> I memorized it all. They put me up front. I delivered some of the windiest dissertations on metaphysics and epistemology. All this other bullshit that you ever heard in your life. And for the next seven years, the longest I ever stayed dry was 90 days. It says in a book I read somewhere, self-knowledge won't fix it. I'd like to add to that. Book knowledge won't fix it either. Only action fixes it. You use your head on what's given to you in the book. And you get it down to your feet, and you walk it, and things change. I didn't know that. I was flabbergasted I couldn't stay, so I tried everything, you know. And I was getting sicker. Hadn't met some mean people. They, they were ugly and profane. Thought they knew everything, was stupid as hell. They talked in circles, every one of them. And they called them old timers. And I encountered a few. Who told me the truth I didn't like to hear. One old timer up in Burlington, North Carolina, used to wait for me to get to the meeting. He denied that, but it's the truth. He wanted a piece of me, and he was going to get it. i come through the door, and he'd point his finger at me, Ken, and he'd say, Boy, oh, I hated that. <laughs> you don't think your way into good living, you live your way into good thinking. And I think to myself, shut up, you ugly old bastard. <laughs> Any idiot knows that. But I didn't say it out loud because I was scared of him, you know. (laughs) Boy, he say, how come you always run around looking for God? God ain't lost. I hated him. Used to call him for help after it was too late. Chest pattern out on TV and all the booze are gone. I think, well, shit, I need some help, <laughs> and I call him. And I call him one, once too often. <laughs> About three o'clock in the morning. Boy, he said, "Don't you ever call me again." Drunk, he said. As a matter of fact, don't you ever call me again. If you want to get sober, you know where we meet, and don't ask me to come get you. You can walk. And he said, frankly, I don't give a damn if you ever get sober. That's a piece of love. It's a piece of love. And I hated him for it. And I bless him for it now. These old timers don't change much, you know, they're basics. Last time I saw him, I'd been sober 16 years. He was dying with bone cancer. I walked into his hospital room, and he saw me, and up came the finger, and he said, Boy, you'll never make it. (laughs) He's one of my heroes. I got some heroes in this program. I wouldn't be sober without the heroes. We need heroes in this program. We don't need idols in this program. Don't mistake them. An idol is an image you build so you can destroy it when it does something wrong. A hero is a guy who gets out there and makes mistake after mistake after mistake after mistake, after mistake and gets up and tries it again until he gets it right. And then he can't tell you how he did it Which one of you have sponsored anybody can tell me how you did it? People come up to me, a boy came up to me like a kid. Hell, it was the guy with you, Kenny and a kid. He said, I heard you 16 years ago, and you turned me around. I said, I did what did I say? <laughs> I have no idea. And that's a good thing. Because I'd probably run around saying it all the time. <laughs> trying to turn people around, you know. It was a God shot. You sit down and you're talking to somebody and they ask you a question. And from within you, but not from you, comes an answer. Boom! And it's right on the money. And it's a God shot. And you say to yourself, damn, that was good. (laughs) Let me write that down. I'm gonna use that again. And before you can write it down, you've forgotten it. I get so pissed off at God (laughs) sometimes. All these profound things I could be saying. And I'm standing up here trying to keep my voice going. And I'd be dangerous if I was profound. I'll tell you that right now. I got myself on five years probation. Two year active sentence on the road, road gang. I was a college professor, I was about to get fired, and I came to, think, think about those words, I came to, and I said to myself, you can't quit ranking. And this time it was more than words. I knew it. And I said, and and you can't drink either. And knew that. And I didn't have a driver's license. So I made a profit out of grumpy. I walked back to Alcoholics Thompson. And I got there late and I left early. I knew nobody wanted to do anything to do with the sorriest SOB on the face of the earth. And the people amazed me. We're glad you're here. We need you. And the one that would run me out the door crying was, and we love you. We kept going. Got to looking around, saw this man in there, and he. He drove a Lincoln Continental. That impressed me. (laughs) Wore $600 suits. Silk shirts. Alligator shoes. Spiritual. (laughs) But that wasn't what attracted me. That wasn't it. It was his eyes.
1: Damn man, look right through me. I couldn't look at him.
0: There was something in there. There was something in there. And it was shining out. And I sat up to him one night and I said, I don't want to die. Will you be my sponsor? And he wheeled on me and he threw that finger down at me. And he said, boy, I've heard about you. (laughs) They tell me you're not just alcoholic. They tell me you're crazy. But I'll help you on one condition. I said, what's that? He said, we'll do it my way. And I don't know but one way. And it's in the book Alcoholics Anonymous. You ready to do that, boy? And I said to him, I don't even believe us today. Yes, sir. I surrendered, Kent. No human being on the face of the earth who cannot take direction has surrendered. Only when I was willing to take direction with no questions was my surrender there. And I didn't even know that. And if I'm glad because I'd have messed it up. I'd have run around yelling to the world, I've surrendered, I've surrendered, I've surrendered. <laughs> you know, I'm sober largely because of what God kept from me. And Harris
1: started helping me. You
0: gonna make it, boy? I said, I wish I believed that. He said, use my faith. How's that for a gift? Use my faith. He said, the first thing I want you to do is I want you to come to meetings early and shake everybody's hand and ask them how they're doing. Last thing on earth I wanted to do. <laughs> Thought he'd lost his mind. I said, I don't want to come to meetings early. I don't want to shake your hands. I don't care how to are doing. And why do I have to do that? And he said, boy, you don't ask me why. You do what I tell you to do. And you people have been through treatment. Listen to me. Listen closely. You had what is called a counselor. A sponsor and a counselor ain't the same. I got a master's degree in counseling. Aren't you impressed? Shit, be impressed for a minute. I'm not. If as a counselor I told you that, my next question would be, how does that make you feel? (laughs) My sponsor didn't give a happy shit how it made me feel. He said, don't talk to me about feelings, good feelings, bad feelings, mediocre feelings. The things you got to do if you're going to stay sober, whether you feel good or you feel like it or you don't. And he loved me all. He he cared about my feelings. Don't get me wrong. But it was action that he stressed. I started saying sober. People were amazed. He called old Grumpy, that old guy I told you about, told me he didn't care if I ever got sober. I nicknamed him Grumpy, you know, and it fit because he's ugly. <laughs> Harry called him and said, Tom been sober six months. Grumpy says, you're a damn liar. <laughs> Ain't no way that boy can stay sober six months. Harry said, won't you come on down and see him pick up his yellow chip? <laughs> Grumpy said, I got the flu, but I'd drive to hell to see that. And Grumpy came down, you know. And then it was my one-year birthday. Harry had been working my butt off, making amends and doing all these kinds of things that are not normal, y'all. <laughs> I have my speech, all written for my first birthday. All those profundities. And I got up, and I started crying.
1: And I couldn't quit.
0: And they kept counting. And this quiet little man in the group that I'd never noticed, who had moved to Charlotte, North Carolina, from Cleveland, Ohio, where he sobered up in the Cleveland Clinic, came forward and picked up a 25-year chip. See, God takes care of drunks and fools and idiots like me. My anniversary was the same as his. I made a big deal out of mine. He humbly accepted his with the following words. God gave me these years a day at a time because he knew that's all I could handle Amen It's been a ride, y'all I've had a rough time in the last ten years of my sobriety I've had cancer emphysema chronic bronchitis my mother got Alzheimer's and died. My sponsor got Alzheimer's and died. I almost went bankrupt. My wife was killed. My oldest daughter died of alcoholism. That's tough, ain't it? Yeah, it is. And I thought about killing myself, and I thought about dying. I thought about all these other things, but you know what I didn't think about Kent? Not once did I think about taking a drink. Sanity has been restored. The obsession to drink is gone. And sometimes I think sanity is really what the program gives us. That Everything else is just icing on the cake. The obsession to drink is removed. And we're saying. And then we live our lives. It's just opinion. but well, I've heard a guy named, named Tom P. Who used to be a running buddy of Bill Wilson's. Say, sobriety is what it's all about. Everything else is marginal. Sanity is what it's all about. The ability to recognize what's good for you and do it, and what's bad for you and not do it, is sanity. I don't know what I said. It ain't felt good in here, I'll tell you that. But it's felt awful good in here. And that's your gift to me. And I appreciate it. I'd like to close with a song that a friend of mine down in South Carolina wrote. And I'd like it to be a dialogue between my two daughters and my son, who's now in the program so over eight years. And my black belt Southern Baptist mother, if I can remember the words. My oldest daughter says, Dad, why aren't you famous? I said, Christy, I think I am. Because all the people you see here today came out here to give me a hand. But their applause isn't what really matters. It's what I can feel from their hearts. And if today I made dreamers of some who had lost, or made friends with a few who were scared, or if there's one new believer who came here a cynic, and I told him that somebody cared. And Christy, I always feel famous. No, I'm not seen on TV. I get all the attention my ego can handle doing this live and for free. You see, I do it live and for free. My second daughter says to me, but Daddy, why are you lonesome? I said, Francis, I guess I am. Because there are a few people that I miss today who aren't here to give me a hand. But, you know, in some ways they're closer than the people out on the front row. And if I'm quiet, I can hear Chuck C's he heart beating rhythm. See Bob White driving his car. And there's preachers and poets that I never met, like Bill Wilson, who hasn't gone far. So I'm alone, but I'm not really lonely. I just got a group you can't see. They give me all the companionship my faith can handle doing this talking with me. You see, they do this talking with me. My son says, well, Dad, I think you're crazy. I said, Jason, that's what keeps me sane. I was born with a strange sense of humor to go with a strong sense of pain. And I found that there's nothing so serious that it can't hold its own in a joke. So I may smile at stories about people suffering and laugh about losing my hat. Make people think I give talks without answers because I tease them and I hide where they're at. But I also like things that are simple. And the smile is the last thing you'll see on the face of this crazy old outlaw laughing out loud. Because I mean, I laugh like this. I'm free and then my mama comes in but Tommy do you love Jesus and I said mother doesn't it show she said I've been listening to you for an hour and frankly I gotta say no (laughs) because if you did you'd be famous big concerts and Christian TV you'd be so well known you'd never get lonely you'd never be crazy or weird but you got to give up giving talks without answers, and you ought to shave off that old beard. And I said, "Well, I love you too, Mother, but you sure found it different than me. You see, I do my best, and I do it like Jesus, cause he did it live and for free. Thank you.